So in episode one, we started off with an escape in America. In episode two, we heard the story of resistance out at sea. And now we're kicking off in the Caribbean, where my grandparents are from. Desiree, what was the first nation to abolish slavery? Is that something that you know? Is that an easy one for you? Well... (laughs) It's funny because you just said that your ancestors are from the Caribbean. So I'm going to go ahead and imagine that it's there. It's funny because, you know, the British love to talk about how they abolished slavery so soon, just before America. But like, it's a nation of white people. They weren't the first. I was going to guess it was a nation of brown people. And I know Haiti was not having it when it came to slavery. And there were there were definitely revolts. So is that the Caribbean guess I should be making? Haiti was not having it. It was Haiti. They weren't having it for a minute. I mean, the revolution in this Caribbean country is essentially it's the ultimate slave revolt, without a doubt, which is huge. And in this episode, we're going to hear two stories of how this incredibly hard-fought event impacted and inspired other uprisings in the slaving world. That is extremely exciting. And there's honestly no way that something so immense as ending slavery on a huge majority black Caribbean island could not have impacted the rest of the world, right? Right, exactly, thank you. I'm Makita Oliver. And I'm Desiree Birch. And this is Escape, the Underground Railroad podcast. This is a collection of stories about the rebellions, the escapes, and the uprisings of our enslaved ancestors, served alongside the powerful and evocative Amazon Prime Video limited series, The Underground Railroad. We're going to be exploring the strengths, struggles, and strategies of our super smart, inventive ancestors. The real-life, formidable heroes through history who never back down in the face of brutality. So before we get into the way that events in Haiti spread, we need to get an overview of how Haiti was liberated. So the first thing I want to say is this story is complicated, Desiree. I couldn't get my head around it. That's its relationship status? Complicated? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it really is. It's quite a... There's a lot of different stories all coming together to make these momentous things happen. So if you really want to get into detail on the Haitian Revolution, you're going to have to pick up a book. You you just have to study it and educate yourself about it. But luckily today, uh, we don't just have books. We have Dr. Gregory Piero, who can tell us all the important stuff. Hello, Gregory. Thank you for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so excited for you to tell us all of the important stuff, or at least the nuggets that we need in order to go. I need to go get a bunch of books and study this because I'm so excited to learn about it. So for the rest of you guys who don't have the pleasure of knowing Gregory, as I am pretending that I do right now in this very moment, (laughs) even though we just met, Gregory is an associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Connecticut at Stanford. He is the author of The Black Avenger in Atlantic Culture. So, Greg, the Haitian Revolution takes place from 1791 to 1804. And at that time, Haiti is called Saint-Domingue, Saint-Domingue, it doesn't have an accent. My high school French, not the best. Saint-Domingue, I'll just say. So look, who lives on this island at this time? What are their lives like? So I'm going to back up a little bit. You mentioned uh, several names of this place. Uh, Saint-Domingue is the French name, and it's derived from Santo Domingo, which is the Spanish name of the Spanish half of this island. 
that is also ah. known as Hispaniola, yes. is the second island uh, Columbus landed on on his first voyage and also the place for, of the first uh, permanent European settlement in the Americas. So Europeans have been there for a long time. They've been enslaving people there for a long time. Native Americans at first, and when they killed all of them, they turned to Africa. Uh, so very early, starting in the 1500s, the Spaniards started importing uh, Africans and enslaving them on this island of Hispaniola. So we see uprisings very early as well, right? In the 1520s already, we have the first enslaved uprisings on that island. So we're talking about a very long history yeah. here. Well, so wait, sorry, I please continue on in a moment. But just to clarify, there were indigenous people living on the island of Hispaniola, that uh, settlers completely decimated. And then once they kill all of them, they're like, we're out of people to abuse. We need to import some other people so we can decimate them. Yeah, they started early. They noticed very early that natives were dying by the thousands, some being killed, others uh, through diseases brought by Europeans. I mean, it's a, yep. a fairly well-known tale, I believe. <laughs> and so, yeah, no, they, I mean, natives were still around when they start kidnapping uh, Africans to enslave them in the Americas. Uh, Columbus also brings uh, the sugarcane to uh, to the Caribbeans. But so by the 1600s, there are basically no more Native Americans on the island. Uh, and the Spaniards have moved on, right? They're still present on the island, but they don't believe it's the best place to get gold, which is their main, you know, their favorite thing to do. Uh, so their uh, occupation is fairly minimal. And so uh, pirates from all over, especially French ones, start sort of encroaching on the island, setting camp there, eventually building cities to the point that uh, by the late 1600s, King Louis XIV of France signs an agreement with Spain that cedes the western third of the island to France. That is what becomes uh, known as Saint-Domingue. It becomes an official French colony, right. even though early right. on it was basically settled by pirates. And so when the, the revolution is about to start, so in the 1790s, we have 500,000 enslaved people living on the island, 32,000 whites, and 25,000 uh, free people of color. Many of them, so sons, you know, to be born free, you basically had to be the son of, of a white man uh, who would, right. you know, set you fair birth. Or people who somehow managed to gain freedom in their lives. They tend to be planters or artisans, or, uh, some of them uh, even own slaves. Okay, wow. This is a lot already, and we're just beginning the tale. Can I ask about... Toussaint Louverture, because he's the one figure that I've heard about in sort of the Haitian Revolution, mm -hmm. and I don't know nearly enough about him. I've actually, I've never heard of him, so I would love to know anything about him. I feel like Black revolutionaries in America reference him because Haiti is the successful sort of overthrow of slavery, and it's kind of the like, we're close to doing that, or we could, or why can't we do what he did? So... How, I guess, Greg, how much of a success story is Toussaint? Like, you know, how reverential should we be of this man? Who is he? What did he do? Well, I'll, I'll let you be the judge of that. You know, the French Revolution started in 1789. And a lot of the free people of color on the island think this is for us, right? We've been treated like dirt, even though we're free, even though we own slaves. You know, we need to be treated better. So you have the French Revolution going on, which pits, you know, different sections of the white population on the island against each other. You have the free people of color and you have the enslaved all fighting often at cross purposes, sometimes together, changing alliances, et cetera, et cetera. But by 1791, everybody's up in arms. 
Toussaint Louverture, who was at this point a freed, uh, formerly enslaved uh, free man with some status, right, in the, in the colonial uh, society, he was a coachman, he even rented a, a plantation for a short time that didn't work out too well for him. You know, he's uh, formerly enslaved, but fairly, you know, he does decently, socially speaking, let's say. He joins the movement very early, but also as a medicine man, but very soon becomes one of the you know known military leaders right his skill on the battlefield becomes very very uh, famous very quick at that point the enslaved armies are fighting the french right the french army is trying mm-hmm. to reestablish slavery the contradiction in terms here should appear clear and appears clear to very many people right in france they're talking about freedom etc cetera, etc cetera. they send the same troops <laughs> to the caribbean to make sure that slavery is you know keeps going well freedom costs just other people right <laughs> right. Those contradictions sort of become clear, at least to the, the uh, Republican authorities that go to the Caribbean. By 1793, mm. they have to face the Spaniards in the East and the British, who, you know, uh, knowing that a good opportunity when they see one, uh, send troops over to try and take over the French colony. So the British swoop in. And so very soon the French see themselves fighting pretty much everyone. At that point, uh, Sontonax, the French wow. commissary, decides unilaterally to abolish slavery because he figures, well, maybe we can have the slaves on our side. So without even mm-hmm. asking French authorities, he says, all right, slavery is done. <laughs> you know, if you join us, <laughs> now you're free. And it turns the tide of the war. And one of the main figures to join the French side wow. at that point is Toussaint Louverture. He's becoming wow. one of the main military leaders of the enslaved army. He waits for France to actually abolish slavery. That comes, you know, a bit later on, 1794. And when he gets official information back from France, he becomes a French officer. What a life he leads, Jesus. Yeah, I have so many questions, but I just saw this one parallel that I thought, not a historian, but the fact that this started because they were like, we're not taking this anymore. Let's destroy property is historically relevant and obviously culturally currently quite relevant, especially in the place that I'm from. And then, of course, outside forces seeing that as an opportunity is also something that's just so interesting to see having had a precedent set for it many times throughout history. But like, yes, you know, it's like if we are oppressed, we destroy your stuff because the stuff is at the root of what all of this is all about. Mm-hmm. Just thought yeah, I'd say I mean, that. Yeah, I think that sounds like Hackney to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like they come for all the good stuff and mm. all the stuff that makes up yep. who you are. They come for that straight yep. away. They know it's your power and magic. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, they're not legally considered people. They see uh, brothers, family, you know, acquaintances die by by the hundreds uh, working in fields, right? This is all that counts in that society. So when you burn a field, you get a reaction, right? And when you want to bring that society down, that would be the first thing to do, right? I mean, it's all about money in the end. It always has been and continues to be. So (laughs) in a nutshell, which seems a ridiculous thing to say for the totality of all of this, what exactly or what essentially happens during the Haitian Revolution to kind of bring us to the end. Okay, I'll try to make it not too big a nutshell. Uh, so, uh, now, I mean, yeah, you know, a roomy nutshell, like, you know, cozy you for a couple nutshells. You could just wrap up the Haitian okay. Revolution so I'll for do us. that. <laughs> but like in a tiny soundbite. Okay, yeah. so 
The enslaved army beats everyone. They beat the English who pull out because they're also good at that. They figure we're not gonna win this. Let's <laughs> let's let's sign an agreement. It's 1798. They leave. They're okay. Uh, they have an agreement for trade, so that's cool, right? And Toussaint beats local opposition, right? In 1799, there's a civil war where he gets rid of all main officers that were against him. And by 1800, he's basically the sole authority on the island. He's taken over the Spanish side. So the entire island is French and Toussaint is governor general. In 1801, he writes his own constitution, which does not fly with a little someone called Napoleon Bonaparte, who does not like that at all. Um, but he always takes things so well and on the yeah. chin. <laughs> really? Such a generous yes. man. I don't get why he wouldn't be into well, it. Maybe his island was too small. I don't know. In any case, at that point, Napoleon is just about to sign his own peace with England, the Peace of Amiens. He knows that's coming. And he's also a very racist person. Uh, and so he figures, well, now we're not fighting in Europe. Let's go fight over there. And he sends an expedition of 25,000 soldiers uh, led by his brother-in-law, General Leclerc, to reestablish slavery uh, in the Caribbean. Reestablish it? He, wow. He was like, oh, no, no, you don't. We're going to slave you. You want to first and no one else in the history uh, of the world has reestablished slavery. So that's that's a French first. Wow. <laughs> if you want to well, impress you your friends with that one. So this big expedition gets there early in 1802. Toussaint understands very quickly what, what that's about. But he has to surrender. In fighting, people join the French against him. He surrenders and goes back to his own plantation for a while. But very quickly, mm. news from Guadeloupe, where the... Uh, another part of the expedition has gone, revealed to all that might have not believed it that the French were really there to reestablish slavery. So what is we now see as the War of the Independence begins in earnest, and it pits you know the French army against a local army. It's horrendous. Uh, it's you know all sorts of atrocities are committed. That's always true, but we're talking about exterminating civilian populations, gassing them in the in the holds of boats. I, I was going to say the French army are going to turn up pretty like kitted out and ready to go, and we're talking about an army that's not even up to that kind of level of. I mean, was it a yeah. fair fight? But I mean, they're gassing them in the early 1800s. They're gassing them with sulfur. Okay. They're drowning them. I mean, everything. Wow. It's really. I mean, we talked drowning about. Yeah, them. I mean. It's a litany of, of horrors, right? I mean, they import uh, flesh-eating dogs from Cuba. Uh, it's it's absolutely horrendous. And it's a war of extermination, right? Very early on, Leclerc yeah. writes Napoleon and he says, the only way we can win this is by killing everyone above 14. And that's his recommendation. Yeah. Above 14. He writes this on several occasions. Where he says, this is what we need to do here. This doesn't feel like reestablishing slavery. This feels like genocide. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like retribution for how dare you think that you would be better than a French white man will show you mm. that you're nothing. Well, Leclerc sees very quickly that there won't be any easy reestablishment of slavery. Local people have been at war for about 10 years at that point. They're not ready mm. to go back to this. They won't let it happen easily, and he knows this, right? He dies of yellow fever, uh, the friend of all Caribbean revolutionaries. And he's replaced by his second in command, who's even worse than he is. So this guy is, I mean... It's... The brother-in-law dies. Yes, Leclerc dies. And then is replaced by someone even more evil. Brilliant. Yeah, always. There's always someone more evil waiting on the side. He smash one down, two worse ones appear in their place. It's like a gothic novel. It's really, uh, I mean, spectacles of murder. 
militarily, they no longer have a leg to stand on. They hold cities on the coast, but they can't go into the interior. The troops are wrecked by the yellow fever. Oh, on the other side, uh, Dessalines has managed to unite all the different factions of, you know, the people from Saint-Domingue. And they had a civil war not too long ago. So a lot of these people uh, don't like each other, but they agree to unite under him to kick the French out. And uh, in November of 1803, the Battle of Vertiers, the last major battles of the war, the French are defeated and Dessalines allows the troops to uh, withdraw from the island, right? They, he lets them go out on the ship they're swooped in by uh, the British Navy that's just circling the island, waiting for them. So as soon as they get out, they're taken to England on prison ships. And on January 1st, 1804, they declare independence, renaming the country Haiti after the name Haiti, which used to be the native name for the island. Bit of good news at the end there, Craig. Yeah. yeah. Just a Hard bit. one good news. Hard Lots one. of bloodshed for that. I have to mention a, a tragic development, though. Uh, I did not say this, but uh, Toussaint Louverture was actually captured in uh, 1803 uh, treacherously. They promised they would leave him be. They don't. Uh, Leclerc figures that if he's still there, he's always going to be a beacon for an uprising. So he captures him and sends him back to France, well, sends him to France, uh, where he's put in a jail in the uh, Jura Mountains in, uh, close to Switzerland. And he dies there in April 1803. <laughs> Does he see Haiti become independent? Oh, no, no, he does not. Why did they have to take him all the way to France? Like, why couldn't they just kill him on his island? I don't know why they didn't kill him, to be honest. But the idea of taking him to France was that it would be way too far for him to just escape and, and go back where he wanted to be. <sighs> well, it's a lot it to yeah. take on. I guess um, they didn't want to make him a martyr? Maybe? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how that did not make him a martyr. He becomes a symbol even for, you know... England is very fond of reminding the entire world that Napoleon did this. You see caricatures of the time in, from England that fairly regularly summoned Toussaint Louverture as one of the atrocious things that Napoleon did. So whatever he right. had in mind, I yeah. wouldn't say that it worked out fairly well. Yeah, it didn't. That well, wasn't course, it. Yeah, I mean, how do we remember Toussaint and how do we remember Napoleon? So, you know, finally, they, there is independence on this island and they have this new name. I feel like they're strong and they can do this now. How is their revolution felt and heard around the world? It's felt and heard everywhere around the world. I often say it's shocking when, as I think for most of us, you grow up finding, oh, being taught very little about this, but you find out how much yeah. people talked about it. And so it's all over the news. I would bet you can't find a newspaper between 1791 and 1804, and even later, that does not mention uh, Haiti one way or another. Uh, everybody knows about it. How does that make the world feel? Do you think that spreads a fear around the world that this can happen and it can spread? I would say mixed feelings. <laughs> uh, depend who you're talking to and at what point. It is a beacon of hope for black people everywhere, certainly in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, throughout the Caribbean. I would say it's also a beacon of hope for quite a few humanists, I guess you can call them, in Great Britain, in France as well. You know, an example I like to think of is uh, Edward Rushton. He's a poet, a Republican poet from Liverpool. Really, really interesting life story, but who writes poetry about the revolution Revolution, uh, publishes it is an abolitionist as well to him haiti is a model right and that's the case for many people and not strictly you know throughout the african diaspora but throughout the african diaspora haiti you know is is especially significant right you will find uh, speeches articles from preachers from uh, freemasons in the united states you know from the early 1790s talking about uh, the revolution as, as an example right? as a model to follow one way or another you have to be careful of course they can't call for revolution but you can 
and sorry through the lines. And then if we talk about planters, of course, they are very much scared. And throughout the slaveholding world, which would be all of the Americas, Haiti has a fairly Good. central position, geographically speaking. And very soon during the French Revolutionary Wars, the French, once they get the support of the enslaved armies uh, in Saint-Domingue, also figure, well, maybe we can start this all over the place, right? So they send expeditions in St. Lucia, St. Vincent, you know, different English islands trying to foster revolts in all of those places. So that's for the, you know, the actual impact. But then uh, symbolically and intellectually, it's much harder to measure, but I would say that impact is even broader, right? We know, again, people talked uh, and, and knew about this very, very, very far uh, all over the world. Good. Spread the news. You know what I mean? Honestly, like, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm sure people who are getting this news, at least anyone who's lived under the boot of oppression, is just like, nice to see somebody stick it to the colonizers, just Mm. to give you hope that it is possible, because, I mean... All of the stories, obviously written by the same colonizers, are of them just obliterating anyone in their path. So this is so important for to hear now, as I'm sure it was then. From early on in the conflict, refugees from Saint-Domingue escape for a variety of reasons. Many of them are planters, but they're also free people of color and also enslaved people. You find them going all over the Caribbean, but also all over the United States. Uh, More than 25,000 people from Saint-Domingue end up in the United States alone uh, throughout the conflict. Uh, And so everywhere they go, they bring, you know, their own testimonies, things they've seen, they lived through. And we're talking again, planters all the way down to the enslaved, right? So you get all sorts of news from all parties and spreading again to the immediate vicinity of the island and through through actual bodies, right? The people from Saint-Domingue are all over, you know, Jamaica, Cuba, all the way to New York City. Right, and that's how we get to the east coast of America. It's the year 1800 in Richmond, Virginia. I really hoped that I would get some sleep tonight, but my worries about what is to come are weighing heavy on my mind. This has been months in the planning. I have spoken to, alerted, and organized hundreds of the enslaved in the area. They're on board. They want to make the break. But if it doesn't stop raining, if this rain doesn't stop... What do we know about Gabriel Prosser? So we know that Gabriel was an enslaved man. He was also a skilled worker. He was a blacksmith. And this kind of skill were, uh, gave him a, you know, a higher social status... Uh, We also know he was literate, though we don't know how. That was very rare and not seen kindly by enslavers. So he lived in Virginia, which at that point was also a hub of progressist uh, politics, uh, if you can imagine that in a slaveholding society. And we know he he moved in different circles. He knew many white workers that he would mingle with. He met a lot of enslaved as well. And so he could, you know, navigate and circulate among people and talk to many different people without necessarily raising suspicion. Uh, which clearly allowed him to organize this movement. All right. Now, what is his connection between the uprising in Haiti and this uprising led by Prosser? We know that uh, Prosser was in touch and spoke to two Frenchmen that lived locally, but the exact nature of their connection is, I think, to this day, not very clear. That tends to be one of the links or the most immediate and concrete links that we make between his uprising and the Haitian Revolution. But of course, in 1800, the Haitian Revolution is ongoing. And Virginia is one of the many places where uh, refugees from the island have come. So we assume that in Richmond and you know on the coast, you would have met sailors 
Uh, he would have met people that were uh, involved in a variety of ways with the uprising. And certainly this was the spirit that sort of breathed throughout the Americas at that point. So to what extent were there more concrete links? We don't really know. It's unlikely that, you know, Haitian government had any connection to Prosser. But it seems fairly clear that the spirit of the Haitian revolution was one of his inspirations. Got it. So it sounds like it's not only immigrants coming over, but it's also just the spirit that is in the air and the news around the world that brings this revolution sort of from Haiti over to Virginia. Yeah, very much so. I love that. And I think there's a, there must be a very wonderful connection between why you've chosen this story in relation to the Underground Railroad. Yes. I mean, one thing I thought was striking in the novel and in the show was the place made to blacksmithing. The main blacksmith in the show is Ridgeway's father, who also is a, a really benevolent white figure, right? He allows uh, black people to work. Uh, he's likely to bequeath his whole business of blacksmithing to Mac, who's black, right? And he speaks all the time of the great spirit, which seems inspired in this case by, you know, Native American spirituality. But of course, the figure of the blacksmith in African and Afro-diasporic spirituality uh, is not random, right? It's connected to uh, Ogun, one of the Orishas. It's main figure of spirituality throughout the Americas and in Haiti. And in that regard, right, the blacksmith is not just a skilled worker, which of course he is with status, but also that there's a spiritual dimension there that I think is present whether or not Prosser himself used it, right? For a long time, people would try to make him pass as a sort of, a, you know, spiritual leader. But from all accounts, he wasn't a very spiritual person. Uh, that, though, I don't think would prevent other people to see him as one, if, they, if that makes sense. Right. You don't have to speak spirituality to, to be a spiritual symbol. And so I really do think that, you know, there's an interesting connection there uh, with what the show does uh, with, you know, the blacksmith, who's sort of this, you know, mystical figure and this mm -hmm. idea of the great spirit that, that Ridgeway can, can never reach somehow. Wow. Thank you so much for bringing this sort of spirit realm into all of this stuff. And also the idea of things being projected onto someone like Prosser. I mean, who was uh, obviously an educated man. And there does seem to be kind of a pattern forming here of our leaders in terms of, you know, having an education, sort of making a break with it. I do completely agree with you. I mean, I think we all know the sentence knowledge is power, but there's something about there was actual terror of us knowing anything more and anything more and anything more yeah. i mean and i think they were right to be scared because look what happened the minute we you know had a bit of literature and, and let our minds expand we stood up we rose well yeah the the minute that they let a person have a little bit of personhood you know the only way it works is if you try to strip all <laughs> right. humanity and you can't do it because people will claw it mm -hmm. back as that general leclerc was saying or i can't remember if it was him or his compatriot but like you know the only way you're going to do this is to slaughter them because you're never going to put that fire out right Right. As you said, you know, both in the show and, and in the history we're talking about, um, that spirituality is also education and knowledge. Yeah. And in the action of the time. From Bookman to Prosser, these are people who are educated, who insist on education, right? And whose education leads to politics, right? To collective action. Yeah, because also the blacksmithing is about knowing how to temper and wield that flame of education and knowledge and insight mm -hmm. too. So that being a spiritual mm -hmm. thing of being like, it's not just about learning, it's about what you then can do with it and how you temper that, I think is beautiful. 
Of course. I mean, look where Caesar's mind goes with just a copy of Gulliver's yeah. Travels. It's like, imagine what Caesar could have done. Yeah. I mean, he, he got Cora Caesar. free. She never would have left. He was the one who was like, we're going. And that was one yep. book. And he was like, let's yeah. get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what is the plan here? What is the intention? What is Gabriel's intention? And, and how fully formed is this plan starting to become? So again, with what limited information we have, it appears that early naively, perhaps, Crosser appears to have thought that if he could take over the capital and the armory in the capital... Uh, kidnap the governor, uh, James Monroe, right, who would become an actual president about a de two decades later, I believe, and talk to him, then they could come to an agreement mm. right, uh, about freedom. Because these are people who talk about freedom all the time. Douglas Egerton, the historian who wrote about the rebellion, his opinion is that it's possible that Prosser actually genuinely believed that they were honest about this. And so he thought that that branch, you know, Jefferson and the Republicans of the time, that party who was facing the pro-English Tories uh, conservative on the other side, that they might be uh, actually honest and genuine about their feelings about freedom. And that if he showed that he was ready to fight for it, they might come to an agreement. I don't know. It seems both brilliant and crazy at the same time. He thought that he could kidnap these guys, and they'd be like, super cool. Like, I'm glad you kidnapped us for this chill sesh where we get to talk about freedom and pontificate on philosophy, and we're totally in agreement now. I both see that as beautiful, and also like, are you from the same America I'm from? Naive. <laughs> yeah, right. But actually, I think maybe after years of witnessing brutality, I think maybe they've just seen it go in the same way over and over these horrendous circles of horror. Yeah. And actually, I think that's part of his involuntary spirituality, which is that he thinks on a different plane. And he was like, let's look in each yeah. other's eyes and maybe that will create change. I suppose he was like, the violence ain't doing it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you have a good point. Like, let's look each other in the eye. I love Gabriel. <laughs> let's look each other in the eye and see what happens. And let's hope that I don't get immediately executed after having done this. But it's so interesting. It's that whole thing of like, how close can we get to being humans and how far can we get away from it? And what happens yeah, when we're I close and what happens when we're far away from it, you know? Two men in a room looking at each other is serious. Yeah. So, Greg, how would Gabriel have been able to organize such a big group of people, regardless of how good his plan is? How does he logistically get that together? As a blacksmith, he was very much in demand uh, as a skilled worker, a uh, skilled and slave worker. So what that means is that he could be hired by a variety of people and likely for uh, prices lower than free white workers. So he would be hired out to planters, uh, other businessmen, I, I don't know, around the area. So he traveled quite a lot and got to meet, you know, the enslaved in, in, vari in variety of places, different plantations. And he could circulate with, you know, at least comparative ease, right? Because as a hired out enslaved man, then, you know, he had passes and he could go places. Certainly much more than, you know, a plantation a field worker, for example. It's quite interesting. It's like using the old narrative of the way he knows he's used, i.e. I'm, you know, sort of dehumanized and rented out like, uh, you know, mm. like, a, like we would rent out our house now or our car or whatever. But he also... He knows that that is the fact of the way things are. And then I love that he uses that to do the other stuff mm -hmm. he wants to do. But yeah, the idea of renting people out, I would say that yeah. it's horrifying. But after yeah. everything else I've heard, it doesn't yeah. surprise me at all. So he's out in the world and working with other people, seeing up close how differently people are being treated and knowing that there's a huge amount of injustice. 
but also importantly is meeting a lot of different enslaved people, but also a lot of free white people. And we know, again, as a semi-independent contractor, right? I mean, of course, he's enslaved, but he hires himself out. He gets to mingle and, and interact with a lot of independent white contractors. Again, it's not idyllic, right? It's not like there's no racism, but there is a modicum of decent interaction. It has access to a lot of different information, especially knowing that he is literate. And so, you know, he reads the newspapers, right? So that gives him, you know, quite a lot of knowledge, uh, ways to impress, ways to communicate information to build this kind of network. So let's talk about this plot so the moment's arrived the planned raid on the armory is about to happen what what how does it go down Greg? Uh, it rains so badly that they can't do what they had planned to do which was to march on the capital you know they've made weapons out of uh, farm implements that they're fairly ready they've stolen guns etc uh, but it rains so badly that they just can't go uh, they start going and they can't go too far it rains on their parade quite literally so they've built guns, sort of organized this sort of militia, and then the weather's yeah. too bad to go to yeah. the job. I feel like we can relate from uh, this Whoa. particular yeah. aisle. <laughs> and the weather was too bad to do anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I can only assume yeah. they go for it again, right? Oh, I'm sure they would have tried, but uh, someone uh, actually told them. Ah! It's the sad issue with uh, mass movements, I guess. Uh, among the people that he did get in touch with were people that maybe he shouldn't have trusted. Snitches! Yeah, and so um, mm. so they warn planters mm. who, mind you, at first don't quite believe it until they find uh, they hear the story from different people. It's not just one okay. person, right? Several people uh, end up telling. It goes all the way up to uh, to the governor who takes it seriously and musters the, the militia. You know, there's no standing army in the U.S. at that point, especially slave-owning uh, states all have militias because they, they know what could happen. Mm -hmm. So they muster the militia and Gabriel manages to escape. It gets on a boat to get away from that area, but he's recognized, again, as sort of a, a given to the authorities. Who keeps ratting him in? Like, who are these people? He gets ratted in again. Does he get away from the second Oh, no, no, they, they get him. Oh. But they try and arrest 25 leaders, I believe, and end up uh, executing them. They execute Gabriel. I'm sorry. This is just like so gutting and disappointing after everything we've been through in Haiti. And it seemed like this could have, if it hadn't rained, like seriously, if it hadn't rained, the snitches wouldn't have caught yeah, up, right. you know, rat him out. And then like, I don't know, something could have happened. Maybe he could have at least gotten away or I don't know. I'm just depressed now okay <laughs> so look we know that this is just one of many uprisings in the united states that was directly influenced by haiti could you name some others possibly greg i mean some are speculated to have you know as i mentioned before that the spread was so prevalent that it, it's difficult to tell a rumor from a uh, from fact, but the first, the panic in, in Charleston in, in 1793, a series of fires were set around the, the, the city that everybody blamed on Haiti somehow, okay. on the Saint-Domingue. We don't really know for sure if that was the case. Uh, there's an uprising in Point Coupe in Louisiana in 1795 that we know, again, in this case, they do uh, evoke the Haitian Revolution quite directly. Again, this one is crushed uh, fairly quickly. The German coast uprising in 1811 also, in this case, you know, with the spirit of Haiti is summoned and evoked by, by the people involved. And so for decades there, you know, the influence of Haiti is either blamed or actually evoked by people involved in a variety of slave uprisings 
things of, of all sizes. Even, you know, as late as the Nat Turner uh, Revolt of 1831, that also takes place in Virginia, that is also hampered by the rain, I'm sorry to say. Even in that case, the specter of Haiti is very prevalent in everybody's mind. What all the planters want to avoid is the possibility that it would turn into another Haiti. Uh, they keep bringing this up all the way to the 1850s when some people in, in the American uh, Congress want to buy Cuba. One of their arguments is to, so that Cuba will not turn into another Haiti. So this stays on slave owners' minds for a long, long time. I wish it was still on people's minds. Like, I want that to be the Haiti that people know today. Because, like, how dare I have a country that used to have a president who referred to that as an s-hole country when it was one of the it was the first and one of the only countries to tell three major colonizers where to shove it? That's incredible. That should be on the flag on every postcard. Like, that's what I want people to think of when they think about Haiti and what it is. So, Greg, how do you, as a scholar, process these kinds of outcomes? Like, do you see these as failures or what is a good way for people to process stories like this? I think it's really important to think, uh, or at least to try and imagine, well, what is it they were shooting for? You know, a government? Probably not. I mean, Haiti is a, is, a, is a different case, but even then, the driving engine of the Haitian Revolution uh, for a long time were Maroons, Maroon slaves, right? Uh, formerly enslaved people who escaped. Yeah. Escaping was important. Did they want a state? I don't think so. Hmm. Now, these were victims of states in Africa, in the Caribbean, everywhere they went. I don't know that this was their goal. Hmm. What was important was actually to stand up, which they did. I think it's the effort that matters in those cases. It's only mattered to their contemporaries, I believe, uh, whether they were on their side or against them. Yeah. They set standards, right? And I think the standard was freedom applied to everyone. I think to that extent, they certainly are success stories. Yeah, I think it's really important, as you said, to paint it in terms of like, well, it, it, uh, they wanted to survive. They wanted to be free, whether it's about a state or establishing something else. It is about uh, resistance to something. And it, I, it is extremely fair to say that, you know, although these attempts may have appeared to have failed uh, in attaining the full freedom of those involved, they all fed into the ending of slavery by uh, basically making it untenable. Yes. You know, those of you from Great Britain, I think, uh, Mikita, I think you brought this up earlier on. There's a way in which, you know, the, uh, England is very proud to you know, ab abolish the slave trade, which yeah. always baffles me, right? I don't know how that's important. I, I don't know why that counts, but I guess it does. All the French who now discovered that they abolished slavery twice, right? Which is another thing they're really proud of. <laughs> And presenting it as if it had been their idea, right? It's become an argument. Like, no, we did this first. You know, we're great. Like, we abolished slavery. They uh, go on about how they abolished it twice, which necessarily means that they abolish it or, or whatever, and then reinstated it. And then, like, what? Like, what? <laughs> we abolished it twice because we brought it back in the middle. I mean, yeah, it's galling, to be honest. <laughs> Greg, although Haiti is seen as a win... Even winning can be full of complications. Yeah, it's difficult when you win and, and nobody recognizes that you won. Or rather, nobody wants to. And it's really complicated, again, because, uh, for example, Great Britain is very happy uh, the Haitians beat Napoleon. But they're not happy that formerly enslaved people are now free. Right? Those two things happen at the same time. So they support Haiti because deadly enemies of the Napoleonic regime but they do not support a formerly enslaved society. 
And so the way this pans out is that they trade with the new country, but do not recognize it as an independent country, diplomatically. The United States does the same thing. Many other countries still trade because there's still stuff coming out of Haiti that they want, but they do not recognize them as their own entity for a long time. Actually, it takes uh, until France itself recognizes Haiti in 1825 for other countries to slowly normalize their, their diplomatic relations with Haiti. And that recognition comes at a terrible cost, right? Where France actually agrees to recognize Haiti after the president of Haiti, Jean-Pierre Boyer, accepts to pay a tribute for France. Millions and millions of, you know, francs, dollars, whatever you want, currency you want to talk about, that Haiti paid. They paid the principal in the 18, they finished paying in the 1880s, and they finished paying interest in 1940s. So they paid for freedom forever, basically. Oh my goodness. So, Greg, I mean, there's so, <laughs> I don't know how to ask this question, but what is it that you, particularly, what is it that you love about these stories and hearing them again and telling them to us and... To me, you know, this is one of the things I really like about those stories because they tend to be fairly badly known, generally speaking. The reaction is always the same, right? People just fall off their seats finding out because it's crazy, right? Not that it happened, but that it could have happened and we would know so little about it. But I think the reason is fairly obvious, right? When you find out about this, you know, what does French freedom look like all of a sudden? What does British freedom look like? You know, what do we look like? What, how do we look back on everything we were taught, everything we believed, you know, and say that with a straight face? I think they, you know, they put everything in perspective constantly and they keep doing this, right? And then, uh, personally, this is what I, what I really like about, about the stories. I wonder what could happen in the world if we all knew just a bit more or like just the other tales. I wonder what would happen because that still hasn't happened because I don't know these stories. A lot of power structures would start to disintegrate. I mean, first here, but then ultimately in practice. Yeah. Greg, thank you so much. It was um, eye opening and so much information to take on board, but uh, you really sort of made me see it clearly. Yeah, thank you. It was so incredible and like at times disheartening, but also like that's part of any fight of any revolution are the battles of forward and backward and losses, but are like sort of psychological gains to regroup and move forward. So like just getting a perspective of what these miniature revolutions are a part of is so huge. Thank you so much for that. I keep actually waiting for the fairy tale ending. I'm like, oh no, we didn't make yeah. it up. This is what happened. So it's no, there's no good ending coming. Yeah, if past, there was a fairy tale so. ending, we would have heard about it. I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would have been that would have been in the education system. Totally. Great. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you haven't watched the Barry Jenkins series, it is poignant and it is powerful, and it is on Amazon Prime Video now. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to the podcast. We will be back next week with another story of an audacious escape. <laughs>